Paul writes and God speaks to us. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You may be seated. This very week, the New York Times reported the following. Scientists estimate that at least 211,000 saiga antelopes, more than one half of that endangered species, died in May of this year. Climate change and stormy spring weather may have turned harmless bacteria the antelopes carry into lethal pathogens, the scientists say. So when you hear that, I just want to take a quick kind of straw poll. What is your reaction to that? So I'm going to give you a couple options, what you would say to that report. First one might be, answer number one, oh, that's sad. Antelopes are really cute. Or number two, scientists can prove anything they want with statistics. Or number three, environment wackos making their voices heard again. There's no proof of climate change occurring. Okay, so maybe, maybe that's one of your reactions. All right, we'll give you another, another choice. Here's a second article. Same day, New York Times. Emissions cheating software has been found on more Volkswagen and Audi cars than previously disclosed, the Environmental Protection Agency announced, and has been detected for the first time in high-end Porsche models. So if we do the same kind of straw poll, what's your reaction to that report about these uh, cars and the way they're working around the EPA? Number one, cheating is never okay, and they will need to be punished accordingly. Number two, glad they got caught. People need to buy American anyway. Good for them. Or number three, take that EPA. I'm glad when anyone can work around their bunch of self-imposed regulations, all they ever do is enforce a bunch of restrictions that in the end affect my ability to make money in a free market system. Or number four, none of the above. So in some sense, hopefully it's a none of the above answer, but I think some of those answers probably capture our initial response when we hear of some environmental ethical issue that's out there. And so often, as Christians, we kind of bury our heads in the sand and say, that doesn't really affect me in my little bubble here, in my realm of a suburbia, USA. And there's some things that we're going to see that maybe we need to repent of, as Dean mentioned at the beginning. And we see that in some ways, even with missions, as we've prayed about missions earlier, when we go on a mission trip, 
say to a remote country, maybe it's Uganda, maybe it's Togo, maybe it's Mexico, when we go in primarily to share the gospel, we're also confronted with environmental issues. So it might be a microcosm, a little issue there where this village cannot survive without some water treatment, some well for that village because of the pollution that's around there. Okay, there's a, there's a factual environmental issue that's staring you right in the face, okay, that needs to be addressed. So, but all the more in our interconnected world, we need to realize that the decisions and the things that we do here have a global effect. So we are in a macro level all connected more and more in the world now, and the decisions we make have a global effect. With regard to a lot of environmental issues, whether it's carbon emissions, climate change, extinction of species, massive pollution, all these things, do you realize that some people would say Christians are to blame? Say, what? We're to blame? Well, here's some history. Lynn White, in 1967, wrote a pivotal essay where he blames Christians for these things. Now, how can he legitimately do that? He says, you Christians, based on the way you take Genesis 1 to have dominion and domination over the earth, what you've done is exploited nature. And not only you, you've even influenced non-Christians to just basically say, the environment is mine and I'm going to do with it what I want. Okay, so he puts Christians and these others in this one side right here. And to support his claim, there's, there's an interesting story of a Hasidic Jew. Jews, not Christians, but they believe, believe obviously, part of the Old Testament in Genesis. The Jews, would, he, he recommended that they carry around two stones. The first stone inscribed with the inscription that says, I am dust and ashes. The second stone, pull out, says, for my sake, the world was created. In other words, nature is just a means to my end. Okay? So that's Lynn White in his essay says, you're either in that camp or you're over here in this camp, my camp, he says, where you realize that we're all equal. The trees, the animals, all of creation, all of people, we're all equal. And you need to realize that, and you need to treat with care all the earth, all the saiga antelopes, all the whales, save them all, save the frogs, the blue ones, green ones, red ones, save them all. It's all the right way to do it here. So you're either in one of two camps. Now, hopefully you realize that's a bit of a false dichotomy, right? A false either or. Are we really, really in one or the other? Are we either taking this man view of scripture and exploiting everything, or are we going to love everybody? We want to say this morning, let's take a God-centered view of scripture and see how God says that we should view his creation. And that's our, our desire this morning as we go through the scriptures to see and appreciate a godly appreciation for his creation. And so what we're going to do is we'll start right at the beginning, the passage that Dean read from Genesis 1, uh, verse 25, and then we're going to move forward rather quickly 
um, looking at a suite of scriptures. In, the, in your bulletin, you've got an outline there where you can see a group of scriptures in various areas. We're going to bounce around. One's dealing with land, one's dealing with living things, and one's dealing with man. But in Genesis 1.25, we're jumping in kind of mid-sixth day of creation. And in 1.25, we get kind of a panoramic, wide-angle, glorious view of creation. God has made the light and the darkness. He's made the land. He's made the sea. He's made the heavens. He's made the flying animals, land animals, sea animals. All of this. And he steps back and says, it is good. The Bible names over 200 animals, over 110 plants. Not saying that that's all of them. That wasn't the intention of the Bible. But at least we say God appreciates, God cares about his plants his animals. And God, when he made those, he said, it is good, not it will be good when man arrives. He's really going to like this. No, he said it is good. And he said also, not that, I'm going to create this, oh wow, that turned out well. He said, I knew this was going to be good. It was going to be good, and I, I, I knew that for sure, and it is good. Whether man is there to see it, or not. So God cared about his creation and made it in, a, in a, a good and perfect way. And so at this point in time, midday, sixth day, we essentially have a triad, a triangle, a covenantal relationship between God, the earth, and all living things. Okay? And essentially a covenantal relationship, and we're going to see more of that later, because God cared about his creation. But as we know, God wasn't done so we go one verse further, Genesis 1.26. Now we take that wide-angle view of creation and we zoom in in a much more magnified way. And God says, let, and he creates man in his image. Adam, out of the dust, literally is what that means. So he makes Adam as the pinnacle of creation. And he makes him in his image, which means a couple things. One, we often talk about what's the difference between man and the rest of creation that sets him apart, that he's in God's image. There are certain characteristics and attributes, absolutely, that set him apart. But as much or more so, we being made in God's image means that we have a specific role. We have a specific role in the place of of God as his vice regents, as his ambassadors, as his stewards in his place. That is largely what it means that we are made in God's image. And in Genesis 2.15, when it talks about uh, the Garden of Eden and, and God says to man that he wants him to work it and keep it. So God is enforcing or uh, uh, pushing out that role that he wants man to have. And it's, and it's such a special role. It's almost like the coach on the sideline who now says to his quarterback, you know what, I'm going to let you call the plays now. I trust you enough that you know the plays I want to be called. You call them. You have that authority. Or the teacher that leaves the classroom briefly and puts in place somebody in their place you do what, you would, what I would be doing myself. I trust you, briefly, in that role. So God, in the same way, is saying, I trust man. I give him what he needs in my place uh, to rule, 
to have dominion, not domination or devastation, but dominion over my creation. You know what the commander's intent is. Now go and do it well. Now we know that doesn't turn out as it was commanded there. Sin enters. And then we go forward to Genesis 9. In Genesis 9, the flood. Noah rescues many of the animals, takes them on the ark. After the flood, something very interesting occurs there. God reestablishes his covenant. And in 9.13, God reestablishes the covenant not just with Noah, not just with his family, not just with the animals, but with all the earth. The covenant with all the earth. Now, why does God need to do that with all the earth? Many times in a covenant relationship, there's an element of you will do this or else and blessings and rewards and so forth and curses. The land hadn't done anything wrong. The land hadn't sinned, but man had. And God is saying, the land is my land. I will protect it so that man does not cause the destruction of the land. I will not destroy the earth in this way. So God is committed to his land, to protecting it and caring for it. And so should we as his stewards. So we're going to see that theme over and over again. If we are God's steward, if we are his, the carekeeper in his place, these are the things that we should be seeing from Scripture that he cares about and we see here. Go to Genesis 12. Big picture what goes on in Genesis 12 is you've got Abram, later to be Abraham, and God reaches down, calls Abram and says, I'm going to bless you, Abram. You are going to have descendants that are more than the sand on the seashore. Also, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you a physical land. And that was fulfilled partially for the Israelites when they went into Canaan and received the promised land. But it's much more has an ultimate fulfillment for Abraham's descendants, for the true Israelite, for the Christian in heaven, a physical place. A physical place is coming for us. That is the land. Now move further to Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, book of the law, Deuteronomy 12. If you want to look at an interesting passage there, Deuteronomy 12, 16. In Deuteronomy 12, 16, there's a, it, it speaks of draining blood from animals. All right, now what in the world is being talked about there? All right? So God said, with the animals, with a living thing, the life of the animal is in the blood. And that matters. And therefore, I don't want you to consume the blood. If you go out and hunt, kill an animal, he said, I want you to drain the blood out before you consume that animal. Out of respect for its life. Okay, so I want you to do that, he says. There were other passages as well where he cared about his animals. If there was an ox that was treading in the grain, he said, muzzle, or don't muzzle it, so that it can eat. It's working for you. Let it eat. Let it get its just reward. Other, other um, there's one more I'm trying to remember with the animals. Um, okay. But, but big picture, you see, God cares about his animals there in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 20, verse 19. 
Deuteronomy 20, verse 19. And it's okay if you're sitting there flipping through scriptures. Um, I, I'm more than happy to have you head down, checking to see, is this right, what he's saying? Absolutely, go for it. Deuteronomy 20, 19. In the midst of a passage on the sixth commandment, dealing essentially with war, Dean preached on um, just war partly last week, God says, if you're going to have a siege against an enemy nation, and you go and form a siege around their city, okay, you can do that, and here's how you attack them and so forth. He says, but by the way, when you're doing that, don't do like the pagan nations who go and torch the trees and everything around it just to, to take away their food supply. said, the trees are not people that are fighting against you. Don't do that. The trees bear fruit for you to take in and to enjoy as part of my creation. Don't do that like the pagan nations do. So God there is saying, not only do I care about my animals, here again I care about the land, I care about the trees. Jump forward to the Psalms. Psalm 19 talks about how, right at the beginning there, the first few verses, how creation praises God. And we saw a perfect picture of that in the hymn that we just sang. All creatures of our God and King. A thousand years ago, St. Francis of Assisi wrote that hymn. Um, some have even thought of him as maybe being a little bit too much of a tree hugger. But, but I think he got it right in the sense of all of creation really praises God. And to wrap your head around that, how the moon, the stars, rushing water, it all praises God. And he gets praise from those unliving objects. Now move forward to Isaiah. Look at Isaiah. Isaiah 24 through 27. The state at this point in time is the sin of the Israelites has become so rampant that they have been cast into exile. They are now in exile. They are suffering justly for their sin. But not only the Israelites are, the land is. The land is suffering. So the land is devastated. The land needs to be redeemed. And the land is pictured as crying out for that. And that leads us into uh, Romans 8, the passage we looked at at the beginning. And if there's anything that affects how we live now, the way we live day to day, and our ethics around the environment, it's our view of the future. What is going to happen to the land? What is going to happen to the stuff around us? That will affect how we live now. And Romans 8, 19 and so forth tells us that the creation was subjected to frustration. It was in bondage. It was in decay. But later, it will be liberated. It will be set free from its bondage to decay. But it says, in the meantime, it's longing, it's figuratively groaning and waiting for that glorified state. So that is what's happening even now with the land. And if we think back to Genesis, the reason is, is because of the effects of sin. The whole world in Genesis 3 was subjected to the curse. Adam and Eve sinned. God pronounced a just curse on them and even on the land. So the rest of creation is groaning and longing for redemption. We're groaning and longing for redemption. So we're related 
in this way with the rest of creation. And the resurrection of our bodies, and this is an important point I want us to get, the resurrection of our bodies necessitates an appropriate, an appropriate environment for that embodiment in the end. A glorious physical heaven. A glorious physical heaven. Not one of a vapor-like state where we're just floating around. There is a heaven that is a physical place that awaits God's children. So for now, now we're caught in this state that we've heard often of an already but not yet. An already but not yet. We're saved for Christians. The Christian is in Christ. He or she is redeemed and in Christ. But also longing for the future state, for the glorification, where there will be no more sin, there will be no more sorrow, and there will be a perfect body that is able to enjoy Christ in his glory completely and fully. And where will that be? Where will that end state be? So with regard to the not yet, there's essentially two possibilities. Either the new heavens and the new earth are essentially the earth here with a radical transformation, or one where it's annihilated in a totally new one. Annihilated, totally new. Okay? Which is it? If you look at 2 Peter 3.10, and I'm going to maintain that that it's going to be a radical transformation of the heavens and the earth. But whenever you're wrestling through an issue like this, it's best to uh, address the scriptures that seem at least to have a different viewpoint. So 2 Peter 3.10, if we look at that, and I will read it, because it is a challenging scripture, it says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Okay? Day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. All right, so now, sounds like burned up, torched, gone, annihilated, gone. But here's what we want to do is we want to let Scripture interpret Scripture and read it in the right way. This passage, as well as much of Revelation, is, is, is apocalyptic. Okay, it's an apocalyptic uh, reading a figurative picture of what's going to happen, not necessarily literal. Now, when I say that, by no means is I, am I saying the Bible is in error. We've just had a series where we said the Bible is inerrant and infallible, absolutely. Just saying we need to read the Bible the way it's written and with the intent. So back in Isaiah, back in Isaiah 65 and 66, Isaiah is basically prophesying what then Peter talks about here. And it's referencing a recreated universe not a completely destroyed and start over from new one. So Peter is saying in figurative, apocalyptic language that there is going to be a radical change to this heavens and earth to bring in the new heaven and the new earth. One more passage on that. Revelation 21.5, just to support this view. Revelation 21.5 says, I am making everything new. I am making everything new. Not, I'm making all new things. So again, I'm transforming things. What is here is going to have a radical transformation. 
Now, why did I, why did I belabor that point? Why give the detail of that? Okay? The simple point is this. We can't just wash our hands of environmental issues and just say, it's all going to burn up anyway. Okay? That's not our easy out. We are responsible for what's here and now. It's going to have a radical transformation to what is to come. God has made us responsible as stewards for the talents, the gifts, the treasures, the environment around us. We are responsible for it and can't just say it's going to burn up anyway. Now, if you don't go for that view of a transformed earth, if you say it's going to be annihilated and we get a whole new one, that's okay. We can, we can differ on that. I think we still arrive at the end point. Because you think of this, with our bodies, you know, our bodies are going to be changed, so you probably have the same view of what's going to happen to our bodies in the end. What do you do with your body now? You care for your body, exercise, try to eat right. You care for your physical body because it's a temple of the Lord. Same way we should care for the environment around us. So we arrive at the same point that I'm pushing here, that we're responsible for the earth that God has given us. Now, we do want priorities. I'm not saying care for the trees the same way we care for people. People have a soul. We care much more for salvation of people, and that's our priority. Okay? But secondarily, we do care about the earth and all that is on it matters too. Heaven is a real physical place, and it matters how we treat what is, what is to become. So how do we engage? How do we engage in this area of environmental ethics? Admittedly, in one sermon, there's no way to touch on global warming, ozone layer, species extinction, and so forth. Now, so if you're frustrated that we didn't heat, hit each one of those then maybe you would be frustrated too that you'd be missing lunch and dinner and breakfast tomorrow and so forth. So I don't want to infringe on that ethical issue. What we're hopefully doing is laying a bit of a framework that helps us as we engage in these various issues. That in the end, we want to see God's creation as he sees his creation. But let's go ahead and take just a, a little bit of a step further to developing that framework, okay? Because almost every one of those issues, to some extent, involves science, okay? The label science. Now, what is science, okay? Science, by definition, seeks an accurate understanding and representation of the world through observation and experimentation, Observation, experimentation, data. Okay? Give data. Insofar as science is accurate, reliable, valid, sound, it gives us good data. We are by no means saying, I won't listen to science. It's divorced from the faith. has nothing to do with it. I'll bury my hand in the sand. No way. All truth is God's truth. So if science is giving us truth, all the better. Good data. But, does data make a decision? No. Data is data. Gives us information. What makes the decision? Our ethics, based on our morals, based on our values. 
those values based on or interchanged with our, our worldview, that's what makes the decision. So our ethics helps us to make the decision with the data that science presents to us. So we need not say, I'm not going to have anything to do with science. We're going to listen. We're going to engage. We're going to see, is that a good report? Does it match up with other reports? And so forth. And our ethics, in the end, is going to help to guide the decision that we make. Example, science can tell us that greenhouse gases increase the heat on the earth. Okay, you got this canopy here, essentially. Uh, CO2 and so forth, and it increases the heat. Okay, we can look and see if that's proven or not. Okay, but science can't tell us what ends we should pursue or what kinds of consequences we should value. In other words, ethics is more of what's going to help us through our worldview to decide, should we reduce these greenhouse gases? If so, by how much? What am I going to do with the pros and the cons? If we do this, it's going to cost us this. Those are more ethical decisions that we want to be biblically guided in making those decisions. So if you, if you were to pretend you're on a spaceship, you're given the opportunity to go on a spaceship for a round-trip voyage. It's going to take several years. You and those on the spaceship with you are given resources in order to make the trip. Some of those resources are renewable, so you're going to take care of them, grow them, keep them going so that they continue to provide for you. Some of those are perishable and they're not going to be renewed, so you're going to ration those out accordingly so that they make it long enough for you to make it back on your round trip. You can see probably the, the analogy there that we here on the earth, we are granted the opportunity to be stewards. We're given resources and we are to care for those in conjunction with our neighbor. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. What I do, what effect I have on the resources, affects you as my neighbor. What we do affects our neighbors. And if you think about this, our neighbor might not just be here, might be overseas, might be two or three generations to come. That's still our neighbor. Jesus was essentially saying, everybody's our neighbor. I want to care for my neighbor to come and not just waste everything that is going to affect them. So our final application. What, what do you do? What do you do with this to take away? Is it to go hug a tree? Is that your application from here? Go out of here, go hug a tree? I guess so. You could do worse, all right? I'll become known as the pastor of tree-hugging. Probably could do better, though. So maybe it's that you spend time in a devotional way, appreciating God's creation. Okay, it could be a walk in the woods, time on the porch, taking in a sunset. You realize how God made that? Could be a weekend away at the beach or in the mountains. So for me, in the mountains out west, in my happy place, seeing the expanse of what God has created and appreciating that, like in Psalm 19, and praising him for that. That's a good application. But let's go one step further in, in a, a bigger picture one that we see absolutely Christ is in this. And that's simply this. We started with the garden. 
Genesis 1. And in a sense, we're going to finish with a garden in Revelation. And in biblical times in the ancient Near East, the kings, lots of pagan kings, a few Israelite kings, they would have their own garden. Now, why they need a garden? They're the king. Anything they want, they can order it up and it'll come. The garden they would have was essentially symbolic. It was showing the king's power to return the land to its pristine state. Okay? I want to say, I have the power to bring back to this pristine state. Now, could they do that perfectly? Absolutely not, because of the effects of the sin on, on the world. But they were trying to say, I as king could do that. We struggle in the same way, trying to care for things here. As well as you might go out and do, and try to care for the resources on the earth, we're still limited. The, the land is still cursed. We can't do it perfectly. However, we are waiting. We are longing for the return of our king. We are waiting and longing for the return of our gardener. The second Adam, Adam who was to care for the garden and failed, we are longing and waiting for the return of Christ, the perfect gardener who will take and give us the new heavens and the new earth that we get to enjoy with him forever. And so big picture, this is absolutely leading us to Christ. And as we as his stewards are hoping with everything that we have here, the talents he gives us, the creation he's given us to care for, that we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, indeed, this is, it is challenging to consider all of these things and how interconnected our world is and how hard it is to make some of these decisions. But in the end, we want to be faithful to a God who's given us his word and a God who has given us truth and a God who has um, made us to be stewards and to follow that in a godly way, in a humble way, to say at times that we don't have all the answers, but we desire to follow our Lord who loves his creation, who loves his people, and we love him in return. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.